Hi everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Now and Men, the podcast about men, masculinities, and gender equality. It's Stephen Burrell here, and I'm actually broadcasting uh, from Brisbane, down under currently, um, but I'm together as usual with my co-host, uh, Sandy Ruxton. Hi Sandy. Uh, good day, Stephen. I'm more than a little jealous at your location there. Uh, no doubt you're spending most of your days working hard rather than chilling in your bathers, but uh, uh, I hope so anyway. Um, we're here with Dan Guinness, who's the co-founder and managing director of the UK charity Beyond Equality, which works with men and boys to promote gender equality, inclusive communities and healthier relationships. And Beyond Equality runs uh, transformative workshops and has done so with over 60,000 people now, I think, in schools, universities and workplaces across the UK. And Dan's got an academic background. He holds a PhD in cultural anthropology from Oxford University, and he's also a former professional rugby player. So so welcome, Dan, to the programme. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm similarly jealous of the, the bathers uh, <laughs> and swimming each time. Um, yeah, but I did actually go for a swim just just before this. Yeah, <laughs> good, 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 good. I, I encourage you to do more of that and less work while you've got the opportunity. <laughs> but but and, and we'll also talk shortly about the work you do with Beyond Equality. Um, but as you may well know, like on Now and Men, we do also like to explore the kind of personal side of this work. Um, so perhaps yeah, perhaps we could start off by actually asking you, I suppose, how did you how did you first start thinking about? Uh, issues of kind of masculinity and gender equality like how did those first come into your life and and what led you to then start actually wanting to work on these issues um as well yeah i i think the the start for me there's like this trajectory that i go on and i think it's trajectory that quite a few people go on um which is that initially it was kind of like this issue that i saw that didn't really have anything to do with me um like a problem that the the bad people over there were you know, we're, we're bristling up and why was there this conversation about it? Um, and then maybe it became a little bit theoretical, like, yeah, it's an issue, but um, still not one that I've really got my feet into that I would talk about in, in various places and finally actually becoming personal. But the starting point for me um, came from my mum uh, and it came particularly strongly in a moment where my parents divorced and one of the places that she found a lot of meaning and purpose and and a lot of other things in her life was by doing kind of these big um, social projects, community projects, uh, social justice projects. Um, and so she mm. got heavily into feminism um, and she got mm. uh, also heavily into um, migrant support and some indigenous rights issues in Australia and, and things like this. Um, mm. And she dragged me along through those things as mums I want to do. Um, kind of leverage a free dinner if you turn up to to this event with me type of a thing. And so I went to some of the White Ribbon events in Australia, um, had some training. I remember this this guy rocked up and I thought he was kind of cool and I didn't really understand why he was talking about these things that like, that's not what those sort of people talk about. Like I was in, I was, you know, that kind of struck me and I was like, okay, this is interesting. Um, but that's when it was, was very theoretical. You know, I was there because mum made me and I could see the concepts, but I... I felt like those concepts didn't really hit and stick with me. Um, like, okay, men don't need to be involved in, you know, should be outspoken against violence. And I was like, yeah, of course, right? Like, there's not really a problem there, is is there? And then uh, I went overseas um, and I can remember it was during this period when I was in Italy and then when I was in the UK. And 
um, both those periods, I had several moments where the the worst parts of um, violent masculinities and men's entitlement um, and sexual violence entered into my world. Um, you know, particularly well, no, entered into the lives of women that I was friends with, and um, yeah, that that for me was really hard to deal with. I was very grateful that I, I had a little bit of um, training at that point in how to like listen to a survivor and support somebody. And um, mm. I think that meant that I I did better than what I would have done otherwise, but still I was just like way out of my depth because I, I hadn't realized that these sorts of th things could enter into the lives of women that I knew. And you know, mm. since then I've realized that actually they were there the whole time um, and just I'd been completely oblivious to it, um, you know, that had been normalized or hidden or, you know, excused or whatever else. Um, and then I, so that, that made these, these issues of sexual violence in particular, um, but the way that gendered sexual violence, that became more of a personal thing at that point. And then the next step for me really was when that became a my problem and that happened when I had um, women in my life calling me out and saying, mm. you know, actually, like you and that group of people you're with behave like whatever an appropriate word for this podcast is, right? But treat people <laughs> terribly and, and are entitled and take up too much space. Or when partners of mine were like, you know, Dan, you, you talk a, a good feminism chat, but you know, how are you actually showing up in, in this relationship? What's going on there? Mm -hmm. And I think that moment of challenge for me, uh, you know, happened over five years, let's say. Um, and mm -hmm. there was bits where I, I really got defensive, um, pushed back, lots of other things. I found it really difficult. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was a shock to me and a real shock to my sense of who I was and my identity in the community. Um, mm. Like, I think I'd very much branded myself as being one of the nice guys. Um, and mm. along with all of the, all of the issues that that comes with of, you know, nice guys sort of feeling they're still entitled to things because of that niceness. Mm. Um, mm. And yeah, then, Partly in those moments, uh, I was also going through some tough times personally. Uh, I was on the other side of the world. I, um, hit, <laughs> I hit a very abrupt end to my professional rugby career um, where I had uh, some pretty major injuries and ended up getting um, four back surgeries and had to get a, a part of my back removed and replaced with like titanium and all these like screws and bone grafts and um and months and months and months of not being able to do things that i used to be able to do like not being able to go grocery shopping mm. not being able to walk properly not being able to lift anything not being able to get in and out of the shower by myself um mm. of i remember one day uh i kind of had i mean i think my lowest point there was i uh, I'd had this tweak of this injury and I thought it was bad, but maybe it wasn't so bad. And I, I went home and I was in quite a bit of pain, but and went to bed and woke up in the night to go to the bathroom and it was all okay. You know, limped down, staggered down, 
got into the bathroom. And then when I went to try to pull up my trousers to, to go back to bed, I, I couldn't. And I collapsed on the ground in agony and had to yell out for help for someone to come collect me. And the only person who woke up was the new boyfriend, or not new, but new to me boyfriend of, of a housemate. And, um, you know, he kind of walked in and found me half naked and sort of had to, uh, you know, drag me to my feet and help me to bed and things like this. And mm-hmm. I, that moment where I had those personal struggles, I mm-hmm. started to see how much of my, of those personal struggles was being made worse by how much I had attached my sense of my own self-worth to living up mm-hmm. to a masculine stereotype of performing that athleticism of being the big strong guy of all of that sort of stuff and of being able to solve all my problems by myself i mean i wasn't asking for help when i needed it and things like this so yeah at that point um you know in that period and i say that point you know five years um i started to try to do initiatives to get other men involved uh, mm-hmm. and it was after some workshops that, um, we'd done with the, the local rape crisis center where mm-hmm. the, uh, the feedback from the trainers and the feedback from the group was the material's fantastic, but they're just not actually really engaging with it. They're like, this doesn't relate to me. And so at that point, that was the genesis of my actual involvement in this work of being like, well, maybe there can just be this like translating uh, type of a role of trying to link or create spaces and create conversations that men aren't having, but they could have. Um, Anyway, and that slowly developed. And, uh, you know, 10 years later, we're in Beyond Equality and we do this, you know, with thousands of people every year. And um, I think we do it really well a lot of the time. So I'm really, you know, really pleased with where that journey is, has gotten gotten me and the sort of work that I get to do now. Mm. Wow, such a powerful story and it like touches on so many issues which we deal with in, in this space. So, so thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, so you've obviously mentioned about how you how you were involved in sport, even in a professional capacity in, in rugby. Um, so I presume, therefore, you see there being like kind of benefits to engaging in sport <laughs> in lots of different ways, you know, whether that's <laughs> exercise or being part of a team and so on and so forth. Um, but we know as well that um, connecting to what you were saying, I suppose, that men's sport can also often be entangled with perhaps like hyper ideas of masculinity, right? And things like drinking and violence and misogyny being quite prevalent in some sporting contexts. So I suppose, yeah, perhaps it's, it'd be interesting to know, like, what's your experience been like of engaging in sport whilst doing and thinking about these kind of gender equality issues? I mean, do you think that it is possible to create cultures within sport which are actually egalitarian and nonviolent and kind of healthy? Um, yeah, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I mean, my... My simple, straightforward answer is like, yes, 100% it's possible to do that. And I've been in in a whole variety of them. Like, okay, probably I've never been in a single culture anywhere that's perfect and um, that doesn't require work and that doesn't annoy people at times and um, make people feel excluded and and whatever else. But I've been in lots of places that have been really fantastic. but yeah, like I think there there can be and there often is problems in in some sporting environments, um, you know, driven by uh, there can 
there is such a direct linkage there in those spaces between uh, your performance and your value to the group. You know, like very literally, we quantify who is the best within sports, right? That's um, there's a scoring yeah. system. There's there's almost always um, some way of yeah. saying, okay, this person or that group is better than that other group, right? And that mm. that form of competition can sometimes generate into um, like that hyper competitiveness, into dominance, into mm. uh, it can excuse things like um, aggression or bullying. Um, as being, oh, no, that's just part of trying to pursue that goal. And that's what we're here for. And this yeah. space is is allowed for that. And I, you know, and mm. I, I think um, I, I mean, you, you see some of like the sociology of sport kind of like label that as being like, oh, well, that's an outlet for those aspects of those of our personalities. And I, I really disagree with that. Like, I don't think necessarily that we need an outlet to kind of let off our aggression and our violence um i i think what what sport actually does for people is gives them this structure that they enter into which kind of simplifies what they're doing um with their lives and in that moment and they can focus on an activity mm. and hopefully they can focus on trying to learn about how they're using their body and work out ways about how they can do it um, differently and maybe gradually improve themselves and share that in a playful way with other people and um, to to be to have that contribution be recognized and celebrated um, whether they're winning or not and i'm not i'm not saying i actually don't believe everyone should get a participation prize and that should be the most valuable thing like i, I don't I think it can be good to say like, hey, this person has really achieved excellence in this area. Um, mm. But I, I do think the emphasis that uh, that is placed at, even at the most elite sports in respecting, uh, respecting the opponents in, you know, just simple things like shaking people's hands after games, et cetera, is like a really valuable thing to happen yeah. there. Um, and so for us mm. as an organization, we see sports as being like a wonderful place to have interventions and create conversations mm -hmm. because often you're kind of working with people who aren't normally engaged and mm. you're working in a space where they do really draw um, a lot of influence on their own personal identity and behaviors and, and mm -hmm. um, how they show up elsewhere. I wanted to ask you something about your, your writing actually on sport and sport mm. and masculinity because and you know prior to working beyond equality that's what you did as we said in the introduction um and i think i mean your your phd was on the place of fiji in the international system of rugby union that's right isn't it yeah so but um i think you've you've also argued that sport has has always been an arena where have men have enacted masculinity but since the 1980s things have shifted and it's become increasingly central in defining masculinity so why why do you say that what what's shifted and in what ways <laughs> or is that too Andy, you, you're putting me i mean i was thinking, really on the spot i gotta gotta I, well actually yeah it's, no, no, it's no, terrible no, no, trying no, to remember some of the things one's written over time yeah, i yeah, have the same like... problem <laughs> when, it, when <laughs> someone says that and i think hold on did i write that but yeah. i was thinking about you know sort of economic restructuring and pauperization since the 1980s you know all of that um the impact of 
maybe satellite TV, corporate sponsorship, yeah. you know, yeah. young men not being able to meet provider aspirations and yeah. expectations. Those, those kinds of issues seem to have become much more to the fore and, and also kind of playing out in a way in relation to the Men's Football World Cup now in Qatar. You know, you can see some of these things which are which are there and, and prominent and, you know, not addressed as, as issues around masculinity necessarily. So I wonder if that helps in terms of... <laughs> it does. It, it does. I, I, I know what you're talking about now. Yeah, I I mean, we, different timings for different societies around the world, but in, in lots of ways... Um, and the project I would say that probably most influential on this idea was called Global Sport. And that had researchers from I know, a whole range of different countries, but predominantly in the global south. Um, and that that was studying the shifts that are happening at the social level um, to enable large numbers of men in particular, and sometimes women, but to a much lesser extent women, um, to be pursuing the uh, the opportunities or the promise of opportunities in the global north in this professional sports world um and if you think about it like what we see you know you might see like one of the the pro footballers playing for a premier league club and they they're there and they earn huge 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 salaries and you're like okay well it's obvious why someone would want to you know take that opportunity but the reality of what's happening in, in lots of places, um, both within the global south, but also within um, certain areas within global north countries, like particularly ar um, around communities there that are socioeconomically marginalized, is that there's that um, the potential of that opportunity is known and there's not other potential um, lines of work can, that can compete with that at all. And so there's a huge social investment and individual investment by far more people, far, far, far more people than could ever possibly benefit from those um, global structures, right? And from those global industries of sports. And so what we were interested in like, yes, is like, what's the experience of that highly successful migrant who moves overseas? But I think what, what our research was really interested in was like, what's the experience of the people who invest 10 years of their life um, that have their families providing for them for that entire period of time and don't actually get to go anywhere, never quite get that income coming back. Like how does how does everything get restructured to support that? And we're very interested in that social restructuring because it's um, as with if one of the one of the features of um, the social understanding of what it is to be a man of masculinity that's really common around the world, as you said, Sandy, is that provider idea. You know, and you can <laughs> you can kind of see this play out in TikTok things about men talking about their lives and how they how they feel if they don't have a job and what they need to do to show up for their family. There's all of that sort of stuff, but it, it plays out in so many places in so many ways. There's that very common gender divide between men have to bring in the money, women are looking after the home. You know, it's challenged, it's changed, it's various, but there is that broad trend. And what was getting at in the article that you were talking about, Sandy, was that with a lot of the restructuring that happened, um, particularly around the period of 1980s, um, 1990s, driven by some of those, um, the financial conditions imposed upon countries um, in order to get uh, funding and grants and um, finance from the World Bank, the IMF or institutions like that, um, was 
a restructuring of the um, the civil services, um, a restructuring of industries and things like this to make things more open for global trade and global movement of, um, and that changed the type of opportunities that were available to to people. And what we saw was, um, as we've seen in the UK, was a lot of those jobs that could have been locally based and are attached to a particular industry. It would be manufacturing jobs or maybe um, government service jobs. Those things disappeared. And mm. there was less of that sense of security and like, this is what you can actually do with yourself to fulfill that provider role. And what's what's been replaced, what's replaced that idea of a steady job, a long-term job, and here we're talking globally, right? But very much also we're, we're talking about the West and we're talking about the global North, where this, this is where this is really getting driven from, is the idea that, um, you know, the, the winner will take all. And if you just work hard and you, you prove yourself, um, you can make it for yourself. Like these are these ideas very much with like, you know, late capitalism or with neoliberalism, which is like, you are your own brand, you are your own entity, build up your skills, build up your qualifications. Um, you have that power to create that that future for yourself. And there's wonderful empowerment messages that, that are tied in with that and are great. Um, but also this, they fuel this idea that the individual can succeed alone and should succeed alone. And linking back to sports, what we start to see there is, is the picture of the story of the hero, uh, the hero athlete who has got to either is just born with, you know, such God given talents, um, you know, has been blessed, um, you know, to use some of the language that, that might be quite prominent in Fiji, um, or has also had that support from the family. You know, that's another narrative that's really strong and can, can drive all that stuff, but had to work hard and got this opportunity and those talents flourish and they get rewarded and they have that success. And, you know, and that, mm. that type of um, story and storyline, you know, is mirrored in other forms of, of, uh, you know, ideas that we really see getting pushed at the moment um, all around the world. Like I can see the parallels in the appeal of some of the messages of Andrew Tate, for example, to young men or, or of Jordan Peterson to maybe a slightly older group of men of like, Hey, you know, what you're doing here is you're um, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, right? You're, you're putting yourself together. You're learning those skills of discipline. You're finding that value that you have, and you will get that reward when you're able to actually reach that pinnacle as a productive member of society who brings in the money and with that money can then, you know, provide for the people around them. Mm. So I think that that narrative, um, came in really strongly and it restructured what people expected from work and the opportunities that were available within societies. Uh, and with that, it positions opportunities like professional sports as just being, you know, the, mm. the thing to go to, especially in places where they link in socially with ideas of what it is to be a man. So in, in Fiji, where I did a lot of my work, there's a really strong linkage there between men as a version of masculinity there is really tied in with men being warriors, men being part of the military, um, men being able to provide that protector role to society as well. Also men being people of faith, of Christian faith, um, being very dedicated to the family, to the church, 
Um, so, you know, there's a complex picture there, um, but it's a, it enables a particular type of indigenous Fijian man to live up and try to attain that form of, um, of work and outcome for themselves. And with that, be still the whole way along that process, have their, their work and that sacrifice of their family and the sacrifice of them validated by society and supported by society because it still fits in with this, this model of what you should be doing, especially the more and more it becomes an industry where, you know, at the top are people who own stuff and they take money off and they're billionaires and everything else. Anyway, that's my little <laughs> rant. Um, oh, that's so fascinating. I mean, I'm, I'm sure we could spend the whole podcast just exploring all the issues that you've you've laid out there and the links between masculinity and neoliberalism and sport and so on and so forth. And also that, that piece that you were just saying about the sort of individualism of it all, you know, mm. the individual responsibility and narrative and story and how that's marketed. Mm. But, uh, but we thought we should also spend some time talking about your organisation, Dan, because uh, otherwise we won't get to it. But uh, so let's let's take, talk a little bit about what Beyond Equality does, and and how was it that Beyond Equality, or, or I think Good Lad, as it was originally named, started off in the first place? How how would you say the organisation has developed over time and shifted over time, and and what's your what's your vision for it um, moving forward? Yeah. Uh- I think I gave a pretty good intro to the moment that it started, which was you know, kind of coming, boiling out of those, uh, that recognition that men really need to be involved in these conversations because, you know, men like me and the, the people are around were part of, part of causing harm to other people and we weren't getting involved and we didn't think it was about us. So there was like, there just seemed to be like a missing link there. And I was providing that link so that men would talk about where sexual violence comes from and how it's related to how they behave around each other and the sort of things that we value and encourage. You know, how's it, how's it related to the way we, we brag about how many people we've hooked up with, the way that we lie about that to each other and or we feel a sense of like failure or insecurity if we haven't. So those, those sorts of links was why, um, why it started. Um, and actually, so I started there at university running workshops and they're quite short, they're quite sharp. They're probably a bit more like hit the issue on the head and then deal with you, you know, you're like, actually, here's the truth. Boom. All right, let's deal with the fallout and all right, you're out, go and do it. And um, uh, there was also a separate project that started uh, in schools at the same time and the, the similar bridge, like it was from uh, two women who saw that every conference they went to on any of these sorts of issues, it was all women, or maybe there would be a few men, normally men who were who were queer. Um, and they would be like, well, where are the, the straight men? Where are the cis men in this? Why don't they show up for anything on sexual violence or gender equality or anything? Um, and uh, so they kind of like try to bridge that by offering training to men who wanted to make an impact with boys uh, and create a better version of masculinity for those boys. Um, I think where it's where it's ended up now is that the conversations that we have are, are far less issue based, and the pedagogically, like from the outset, the idea was you've got to get social norms to the surface so people can understand them and understand how they're impacting upon 
their own behaviors. And I think now we just give ourselves more time and space to actually do that and to focus on mm. on that as an outcome of, of helping people talk to each other about what's going on for them and bringing that up. And it's as it's progressed, it, it's meant that we, um, I think we go a little bit deeper into conversations rather than just talk about the, the symptoms of an issue. We really try to get to what are the social drivers that are, that are happening here. And how do those social drivers actually feel for you? And from that sort of a conversation, you you open up a lot more vulnerability and then use that vulnerability to reach some empathy for other people. Um, and then through that, you can see what the shared liberation would be. I'm throwing lots of jargon out here, mm. but the shared liberation would mm. be if you could dismantle some of those drivers and dismantle that stuff that sits beneath. Um, and that and then engage people in that collective project of doing it in that little pocket of people that they're, they're with at the time. Um, so presumably, yeah, I was just gonna say, well, doing that kind of work in that way, it sounds like you need to go quite deep. And therefore, you know, you need time to do that, you need skilled <laughs> facil facilitation to do that. Um, I'm just wondering how you balance that with, you know, going in and running workshops in, say, a school or a university, you know, on a sort of tight, schedule super tight schedule. Quite hard to do yeah really hard to do um yeah and I, I think that there was there was two things you brought in it was like the skill of the facilitator and then the time mm. and um i think more and more we are shifting towards having like a much higher skilled group of facilitators um now if any of the original volunteers and and whoever else are listening like not having a go at the quality of people at the, um, in the past, but more if you've got people who are uh, doing these, having these conversations two or three times a week um, and do that for several years, there's, hmm. you can start to recognize where the threads are that if you pull at them a little bit, you know, the, the thing will come undone, you know, the, or actually lead to the, the place. And what are the bits where you're, um, what are the conversations where they're just going to go around in circle and people are not going to really, you know, get anywhere. So there's a skill in recognizing that. And also in reading the room and reading, you know, when is there a blockage here? Because actually there's a group of people who are angry and we've got to talk about that first. Um, or, you know, feel victimized. And we've got to spend 20 minutes on that, which takes us way off the lesson plan. But <laughs> 20 minutes on being like, okay, what, like, let's talk about why you feel victimized and where does that come from? What does it feel like? And okay. And let's validate some of those feelings as well. Um, cause you know, there's no point saying like your feelings are wrong. Um, mm. but then taking the next level, having, having allowed people to know that their feelings are going to be okay in that space, even if they're like politically incorrect or, you know, not woke or whatever else it's like, okay, but now we can have a conversation about why you feel like that and maybe about how some of the assumptions of what you're hearing or assumptions of the way you think the world's working aren't based in reality. You know, they're, they're based in, you've been sold a, uh, I was going to say like an untruth. I don't know. You've been sold lies by, by some commentators who say that feminism is an attack on men and feminism is an attack on you. And I'm, 
So that's like, that might be like a false assumption that leads to that feeling of anger or frustration or victimization. Or maybe there's just like a misconception of like actually what people's experiences are. And you say, well, no, like the reality is that not many women do make up um, assaults and, you know, false accusations. They're not, it's actually a really, really low percentage of, of that happening. It happens, but not very often and not compared to the amount of stories that don't get told. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but we would love to, um, we would love to be in places more. Um, we would love to have more funding to, to do that. Um, I, it's a challenge. I think we, we've made the decision. Currently, most of the impact we try to make um, we try to have the most difficult conversations with our most skilled facilitators. Then we try to equip some people in that space to have to a high enough level that they can carry some conversations on. So there might be other student leaders or they might be teachers or whoever it might be, like youth workers, so they can keep some of the conversations going. Um, and then we try to provide more, uh, I guess, like, not necessarily entry level um, resources, but um, resources that individuals who are already engaged can start to do the work more themselves. And, you know, podcasts like this would be, you know, a part of that and uh, all sorts of other things where people who are like, oh, hold on, this was interesting. I don't, I'm going to go along for the ride for a little bit more. But mm. I think for us, we, we don't believe that we can completely um, effectively get to the surface some of those deeply held misconceptions or those deeply ingrained stereotypes so that people can look at them and unpack them without having ha someone in the room who's really skilled at doing that work. Right. And so for us, we, where it, it, um, it limits the, the modes in which we can expand our work um, but it's, it's where we're, we're trying to do. So we're trying to recruit locally based people and give them some quite in-depth training and, and support and, um, you know, a lot of co-facilitation so that they can then start taking those conversations forward in like a really high quality way. So, so interesting how your practice has developed over time then. You know, I, I wasn't really aware of that, but uh, uh, that's really fascinating. And, and uh, I guess you must be trying to do some sort of monitoring and evaluation of, of the shift that's that's going on within the organization. Are, are you doing that and, and how are you doing that? Yeah, um, <laughs> monitoring and evaluation is not easy with a lot of, the, um, a lot of these things. No. Um, what we end up doing all the time is some post-workshop uh, monitoring data where we get the participants to feedback into um, their perceptions of whether they have taken the steps that we see as being important along the, the process of change. But then on top of that, what we do um, whenever possible is we do pre and post surveys with the participants, like say three months afterwards. Um, so beforehand you survey, afterwards get a baseline, and then I think really wonderful um, work uh, we do we do occasionally, which is um, some case studies where we go to a place and talk to some of the both the young people who've done the workshops and see like what did you get from what are you thinking about, um, but then also 
in our in our case, we'll talk to a lot of the girls and non-binary people who didn't do the workshops and say, well, what's going on for you? Like, have the boys actually changed? What's, um, what's coming up? What are still issues that you face? And some of the data we, we got from that, I think, is like really positive about what we do. And like, yeah, it's a straight, like they came out and, you know, they were, uh, the girls were surprised by how much the boys had talked about and stuff. Sometimes it's like, identifying that well once it identified that we have to change one of the activities we do because it was having some negative impacts that we weren't picking up on otherwise so specifically it meant that um boys were then very openly having conversations around the links between porn and um their behaviors but in ways which were actually really objectifying and really difficult for the girls to listen to and it was, it was like, okay, we, we need to change the activity that brought that stuff to the surface um, because we, we can't have the boys leaving the room and uh, doing stuff that, yeah, that the girls in their class are getting harmed by. So that like we had to shift. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it brought up stuff which uh, was of more broad interest, like... Um, the problem isn't actually the boys in the school. The problem is the male teachers. Um, and the problem is that the teach like, or a few male teachers who play into those stereotypes, even sexualize the teenage girls for the sake of winning over the, the, the boys at the, t- at the back of the classroom who are a bit hard to, to manage, mm-hmm. you know, so make a comment about, oh, wow, there's a lot of short skirts here today or something like this. And the boys kind of giggle and the girls feel mortified and drop out of that that particular class so some of some of those findings are well deeply disturbing i think as a as an adult mm. who works with with young people mm. um sadly maybe not completely surprising or um but mm. still disturbing uh and then showing that there needs to be a bigger conversation happening at some of these places and and really like a whole school approach mm. and one of the great things that's happening mm. at the moment is there's been a shift in the UK in uh, the conversation around, particularly around sexual violence and and violence against women mm. and girls, um, to being this is men's violence, and it needs to get tackled by addressing social norms. And there's a real appetite for. Uh, I'll put it another way, whereas probably five years ago, the five teachers in the school who wanted this stuff to happen would have been met with a thousand reasons why it couldn't and why there wasn't money for it and why it was going to cause more problems than it was going to solve. Now those, their arguments are cutting through and they can actually get some stuff done. Yeah, because I, I can imagine that participating in, you know, your workshops must be really impactful for, for a lot of the boys and men and, and people that do, do get to take part in them. But as we know, like one of the big challenges in this field, I suppose, is that question of how to scale it up, isn't it? That obviously that's great for all those who are taking part, but the, the, the issue is so huge. We need to be getting it out there to so many more people. Um, so, yeah, what are, you, what are you doing around that? I mean, do you have plans in the pipeline? I believe you've got a project with uh, Movember, which is being developed. Um, yeah, do you want to say anything about, about future? kind of opportunities and um, movements yeah yeah fantastic um we're really in particular really excited by the movember project which we we were awarded uh, a very large for us um chunk of funding maybe not large for some other organizations but very large for us chunk of funding <laughs> as part of their scaling what works project so they 
we had to prove to them that what we're doing is working um, and having an impact. And then they're helping us take those conversations uh, to 20 groups of men in each of 11 different places across the UK. Um, but the wonderful thing, wonderful thing about this for us is that they're actually paying to start with for us to recruit and train facilitators who are locally based and then to do the work of adapting any materials we need to to local context so that we can actually implement these projects. And the, the particular work we'll be doing is around getting those groups of men to understand how they can be supporting each other and how we can actually mm. address these problems of like social isolation, mental well-being, mental, um, mental health, not as an individual issue, not as something that's like needs to be medicalized all the time, but that it can also be dealt with collectively and preventatively um, by unpacking those social norms, doing some of this gender transformative work. That means that the conversation is not only about, uh, you know, it's okay to seek help in theory, but it's also about individual men saying, recognizing like, yeah, we probably as a group are like, yeah, if you need help, just come to me, mate, no problems. Yeah, I'll have a yarn, we'll have a beer, we'll, you know, we'll address you, we'll find a way to deal with your problem. But actually to say, in reality, they as individuals don't seek that help from each other because they fear losing something by asking for help. And what do they feel feel like they're going to lose? They feel like they're going to be emasculated. They feel like they're going to lose that sense of being in control, um, of being able to deal with problems, which has been drummed into them from the start as being like the foundation or, like, or the entry requirement into this group that we call men. And mm. that's why we that's why it's called gender transformative work. Just what it actually means is just like before we can get men to buy into those mental well-being programs or violence prevention or whatever else we want to do, we need to help them understand how they are feeling pressured into going along with certain expectations and the way that it's limiting their behaviors. Mm. And that's where we start. And we start that in the group. And we give that group the opportunity to create a new set of norms and to actually slowly, slowly but surely reward each other for coming forward and, and sharing stuff they're going through and, and asking for help. It's like slowly but steadily but surely passing those burdens onto the collective rather than dealing with it as an individual. Um, mm. So that's the, um, that's the vision and we're really excited about that. And we're trying to build on top of that, like a sustainable organization that can actually be doing all of our projects and so not just the Movember project, but also the <laughs> schools project, and, you know, workplaces yeah. work. Um, and uh, the other direction that we're, well, the other part of this, this plan really needs to be putting, joining in with the work that people like you are doing and lots of other people in our, in our sector of getting these issues onto the agenda in the first place. Um, so that when someone sees that poster, they have enough of that initial recognition that they know that, oh, this is a fantastic opportunity that will feel good for me and for my team, rather than being like, this looks like, you know, wishy-washiness, or this looks like an attack on men, and therefore an attack on me. So there's creating those spaces for that public discussion, um, mm. which involves, you know, potentially putting together some big events, um, to get men who are interested to come and talk and, and share, 
Um, it involves some work with some celebrities. And what we want to do is rather than have them be spokespeople from day one, have them host private conversations in their own sectors. Because I think probably um, one of the biggest barriers that we face is that men, if they, if they want to take that step, talk to their friend. And we, for example, we've got this moment of 16 days of action challenge. And last year, what we did for it, mm. a global thing, um, global campaign, not by us. We, we're a very tiny, tiny, <laughs> tiny part of it. Um, I'm sure your <laughs> listeners already know this, but 16 days of action against gender-based violence. And we're running a thing where we give people daily reflections and readings and whatever else and prompts so that they can build up so that at the end they can take an action. And mm. that's, that's really fantastic. And last year, the journey went pretty well, but the final action, we said, what you have to do is get five of your mates to come down to the pub and have a conversation or to you know, a cup of tea or whatever is appropriate for what you and your mates do. Uh, a Zoom call, mm. you know, if you're in lockdown, five people. <laughs> and the feedback was, it actually felt really awkward to place myself in that position as being um, the spokesperson for what's right or what's good or, mm. and mm. people are like, I'm, I'm worried that, I mean, I'm being a hypocrite here because I've done all like I've now done the reflection to know that I've done all these things that are, and I, I keep on falling to stuff that actually reproduces some of this harm. You know, I'm mm. like, they're not going to laugh at this and laugh at me. And um, I think there's that little thing of actually um, giving people the confidence that it's important to talk about these issues, even if they're not a world leading expert is a really important piece of work to do because none of this is going to change unless we can talk about each of those moments that uh, these harmful ideas show up in each of those instances mm. and actually like call each other in at that point and help people to do things like just that tiny little bit differently um, so that we can, we can change things for the better. Mm. Wow, that sounds amazing. And yeah, really... Uh great work and um also the the work with movember as well i think making the links between like you know mental health and how actually that does connect to the drivers of violence against women as well for example um but as you mentioned i mean the last question i had was um we are recording this during the 16 days of, of activism against gender-based violence and um as you mentioned earlier we have seen quite a big upsurge in conversations about this about masculinity and what it has to do with with different forms of violence in the last uh, few years um especially as a result of like feminist campaigns and movements like me too yeah uh, like after the mur the murders of sarah everard and sabina nessa for example so um yeah i was just wondering like how has this impacted on your work and where do you think we're at in the uk now with these conversations and i suppose i mean do you think there's been enough of a response from policymakers like what kind of response would you like to see at the kind of political level to help support the kind of change which you're trying to achieve yeah um i, I mean i think there's been a huge impact here and there was a each time there is one of these, um, yeah, these campaigns, these moments of women crying out for for change and for justice mm -hmm. and for just to get it left alone and be safe and have dignity, right? some pretty basic stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so many men are then activated, and we see each time we just see a massive spike in the people who contact us and say, "I would like to volunteer. I want to be involved. I want to be the person who's in there talking to fifteen-year-olds, and I can change this stuff." And it's really fantastic that energy comes to the surface. It drops off pretty quickly, I'd say. Um, mm -hmm. you know, it, when things, when daily life starts to happen, it's like, well, that's always a problem. We know it's always a problem. So, you know, I got other problems as well. And that makes sense. Um, 
I think the other thing that happens is there's also a spike of people who hear something very different and actually we get that polarization from these moments of, of uh, public outcry. And I think um, a big part of our work is trying to catch those people who are going down the other end, who hear me too, who hear everyone is invited, who hear, um, you know, who hear the public discourse about it's men's violence and are like hashtag not all men is to try to capture some of them and just like mm. translate the messages across so that they hear mm. the truth of what people are saying with their experiences and they can mm. hear um, the change that people are calling for and they can understand themselves as having a role in that, you know, and because mm. they do like, we need mm -hmm. the men who are writing hashtag not all men. We need them to know that like, no, like we're not saying like you can't be part of this future. We want you to be part of this future, but we, we want the future to be one that's like safe and equitable and there's stuff that you can do there. Um, it's a, so for me, often it's a like, and I would say this is leading to the policy question. I would like, mm -hmm. I, I appreciate and understand policies and changes and a lot of other things that shift towards prevention. So shifting towards what are we doing in the future? So I think when there's the knee jerk reaction to further police um, things and mm. bolster that, and, you know, I, I don't, I mean, I think that's like a, uh, a often harmful uh, response to these sorts of issues and the focus needs to be on prevention and it needs to be on, long-term sustainable change and it needs to be on restorative justice um, and opening up conversations. Um, so that's for me where policy attention should go and resources should go. Sounds like there's a tremendous lot to be involved in there. So um, thanks for talking to us, Dan. I mean, I, mean I, I really appreciate, particularly, you know, earlier in our conversation, your honesty about your own history and narrative and, you know, what you've experienced. That was very, very powerful. And, and also, you know, your so thoughtful sort of contributions about the development of the organisation, where you're going. I mean, it all sounds really, really very impressive. So thanks for talking to us today. And uh, I hope our Christmas gift to you could be getting a few more men involved because uh, it sounds like you need you need some as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, the more the merrier. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so thank you so much for having me on board and uh, for asking me the questions and, and for tolerating me going on those um, rambles monologues for, for five, ten minutes at a time. So it's been nice to talk. No, it's been, no, thank it's been you great so to talk to you. For, Thanks so much. Yeah, and good luck with all the brilliant work you're doing. Thank, thank you. you. Wow, that was a really enthralling conversation with Dan, uh, wasn't it, Sandy? I mean, it's so fascinating to kind of trace the trajectory of his life and his career, really. I mean, that personal story he, he had, which he shared, was, was really powerful, actually, to learn about the, the journey which he himself has been through and then how he's kind of worked on these issues in academia and um, really kind of highlighted how these major global economic forces are actually tied in with issues of gender and masculinity and how these things are interacting and, and influencing each other. Um, and then how we talked about the work that, that Beyond Equality are doing now, which sounds really exciting. But it, it seemed to me there was a, a, one of the common threads there 
um, which was very powerful in terms of his own personal story, was about how so often um, perhaps we as men don't ask for help. You know, whether that is if we're really struggling with some kind of health issue, or whether it is because we we we're really struggling with something in our in our minds and our mental health, um, or whether that's because you know we we think that we should have the answers, but we actually don't feel confident always to to know what to do. For example, about the issue of of violence against women. You know, perhaps there's a lot of men who just don't quite know what their role should be or what they should be doing or saying about it but they don't feel like they have the confidence or that they're allowed to kind of ask for help of, about how to deal with that really um yeah what, what did you make of the conversation well just just building on uh, the point you made there really Stephen um when Dan was talking about his own story and, and I mean I did say in the conversation I felt he was pretty honest and he is pretty brave to talk about this stuff but it's important that he that he did um, he made me think um, when he was talking about the surgery he had about uh, mm. a book called Unmasking Masculinity by a uh, fairly well-known um, sociologist David Jackson. This, is, this was a book from, uh, I think, the 1990s. And at, at one point, mm. David um, has uh, surgery. I think, I think he may have had a, a heart attack. And the, the point is that he uses that moment um, in order to reflect on, you know, where he's got to in his life and what he wants to do with his life. And, and actually, I think that mm. that can be a, a common story where, where, you know, men at certain points, you know, uh, mm. being a father or having an illness or whatever, uh, can shift in mm. terms of how they want to um, to be a man. Um, so mm. I thought that was that was interesting. You know, effectively, it's a sort of critical autobiography from a masculinity's point of view. And um, I just think it's a great book. So I really recommend it if people are interested in this sort of area about life history and, and masculinity. Yeah, because I thought the story he was telling shows how this is a, this is an ongoing process and a journey, right, for any man who does get involved in this work. But at the same time, there can be those pivotal moments where perhaps you have a, a new insight or a kind of a grasp of your own vulnerability or... Yeah, just a new perspective, which can kind of cause a big shift in your life, really. Um, yeah, did you have any other thoughts about uh, about what Dan said? Um, well, one of the other things that I thought was interesting was about not only how uh, young men react to the work that Beyond Equality does, which he did he did discuss mm. quite a bit, but also how the institutions mm. respond too, because that mm. seems to me to be a critical mm. part of this. Um, I mean, he did say, you know, we need to have whole school approaches. And I think I, I agree with that, really. And um, given the way he described the, the sort of pathway that the work has followed, there must be some questions in there for the institutions, be it, you know, um, a school, a university, a sports club, whatever. Um, so, you know, how do we um, make space in our curriculum or our activities to allow for the kind of in-depth conversations that beyond equality want to have how do they allow for that how do they uh, allocate the time how do they um, devote resources to that when there's so much else that they're trying to do at the same time and also I think that you know there is a key point there particularly in, in schools about you know training some of the teachers perhaps as well you know so so some of the work is not just directly with boys and young men it may be with those people who have um, 
influence over them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I think that they maybe they have the ability to actually break down some of the kind of defensiveness which might come both from individuals and also from organizations at times about why they should be engaging with these issues. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because I feel like that actually connects to what he was saying about about sports and uh, rugby and and uh, football and uh, the kind of impact of like neoliberal ideas about the individual and um, you know that we as individuals should you know we we should have all this agency and power over our own lives and to achieve whatever it is that we want to achieve and which society tells us we should um, strive to achieve because maybe sometimes there's a risk that we fall into that trap even in this space isn't there that we put all the emphasis on what individual men need to do to change themselves and the wider society but actually like we we only have so much agency in that regard don't we and actually we, we do need to think much more broadly about how institutions and different layers of society have to have to shift and, and change as well so I think that's such an interesting connection because and I do think that face-to-face work they're doing with individuals is really powerful but clearly I think it's great as well that they're thinking more broadly about how to shift those wider cultures I, I guess as well. The link um, with Movember I found was interesting too I mean that sounds like a really um, fascinating project that they're developing there oh, incidentally um for listeners benefit dan dan had a full beard but i don't think he's managed to grow that in in, in november this time but uh if he has I, i'm even more impressed i have to say yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot going on at the moment, isn't there? Because it also made me think about. Yeah, obviously we do have the football World Cup going on at the moment in Qatar, the men's men's World Cup. Um, yeah, which uh, I suppose just uh, highlights a lot of the issues he was talking about. Uh, and it's. I thought it was really interesting what he was saying about sport. You know how sport can actually be quite a positive experience, like depending on the kind of culture which is nurtured within it, really. But um, I think we can see, unfortunately, that uh, within Qatar and um, and the men's football world currently, there's um, so many issues and maybe it's not doing anywhere near as much as it could be to actually think about issues of uh, sexism and, and gender inequality, as we talked about on a previous episode with, with Stacey Pope. So it feels like a real uh, contrast to the Women's European Championships, which we had earlier this year, where, of course, England the England uh, team were eventually successful. Um, yeah, so I just wonder if that's causing some reflection among some men who are fans of football as well, actually. that Actually, do they really? Are they still enjoying this sport um, or not? And perhaps maybe leading more to actually enjoy watching watching women's um, mm. football, for example. And, and what impact does that then have on their perspectives and their attitudes, um, both to sport and also to, to gender and society more broadly, I guess? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> It's only a minor thing, but uh, I don't know if you noticed yesterday that the uh, for the first time the referee and linesman, or should I say lines people, Absolutely. at one of the matches were mm. all women. You know, and this was this yeah. was a, a great sort of to do and uh, a mm. marvelous innovation, which it is. But mm. at the same time, you know, there's so so much more that needs to be done, and uh, um, yeah. you know, without going into all the sort of politics around Qatar and human rights and LGBT <laughs> issues, but but you know, little by yeah. little, there are some things that are, are changing in a positive way. I mm. guess one can say. Yeah, no, and I had mixed feelings about that because on the one hand, I think that is great, but on the other hand, like, is it a bit tokenistic when essentially all the people with power making all these terrible decisions and often being quite corrupt and stuff are still you know men from western countries yeah Yeah, absolutely absolutely uh, i mean the points you know (laughs) the 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 research that uh dan did many years ago now on you know the impact of corporate sponsorship um satellite Mm. tv 
you know, mm. um, powerful men in the industry, etc. And that yeah. that's all still hugely relevant, isn't it? And uh, yeah, and, so and that's what's influencing so much. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but yeah, perhaps we should stop uh, there for for this time. <laughs> Uh, but thank you so much everybody as always uh, for, for listening and yeah do subscribe to Now and Men if you haven't already uh, don't hesitate to send us an email at nowandmen at gmail.com if you have comments or questions we'll also put a link in the show notes to the um, social media and, and website of, uh, of Beyond Equality um, and hopefully we'll be speaking to you again with another episode soon cheerio mate <laughs> thanks thanks everyone bye bye, bye.